And let me invite you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 30, to the 30th Psalm, found on page 544 of your pew Bible, if you want to use that. Psalm 30, page 544 of your pew Bible. You might remember that last time we were in the Psalms, we considered together Psalm 29, the Psalm right before this, of course, and I titled that Psalm, The Storm, The Storm Doxology. The Psalm, that Psalm, Psalm 29, tracks a massive storm as it forms out in the Mediterranean Sea. It crashes over Lebanon, splitting the cedars and then washes all the way down to Sinai and the deserts at Israel's southern border. In all of this, David saw a picture of the Lord's voice, sovereign, unbridled, and irresistible, a voice so powerful that it can whisper peace like leaves in the wind, or it can boom authority like thunder after lightning. Psalm 29 is a noisy psalm, a psalm focused on the booming voice of God over all creation. However, the storm doxology, Psalm 29, ends not with a word of thunder, but a quiet word. That last word in Hebrew is the word shalom. Verse 11 of Psalm 29 reads, May the Lord bless his people with peace, with shalom. And so it was that Jesus, many years later, stood up in the storm and commanded the storm with the same word, shalom, be still. At that moment, the disciples knew that Jesus was no mere prophet. Jesus had not prayed or begged. He had not said, thy will be done. No, he had simply commanded the storm. The text tells us that though the booming storm had frightened the disciples, this revelation, this theophany, this whisper of shalom by Jesus, it terrified them. And it's true. Jesus often makes himself known to us most clearly through or after intense suffering and weakness. Before the disciples were ready for the sweet whisper of peace. They needed to hear the booming voice of the storm. Jesus, you will recall, put them into that storm, and he waited. He let suffering do its work. He waited until they were at the very end of their rope, when hope was lost, when they they even experienced seamen, had tried everything they could think of, exhausted, They finally turned to him and they cried out, don't you care? Don't you care that we are drowning under the booming voice of suffering and pain? And then, just then, and not before, he whispered a sweet word, a word that changed their lives and filled them with incredible wonder and amazement. Now, just like you, I don't like to suffer. And being Scots-Irish, I hate being weak even more than I hate suffering. But we have to reach this conclusion. God humbles those he intends to use. 
we must submit again and again to the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Paul confessed, for when I am weak, then am I strong. And again, he says, his strength is made perfect in my weakness. Intense weakness and suffering and trial is often the required preparation to receive God's greatest blessings. Before he draws near in power, he wants us humbled, he wants us waiting, and he wants us wanting. And that is very much the background for this psalm, the psalm we're studying this morning, Psalm 30. Here we come upon David as an established king reigning in the height of his power. God has given David victory over his enemies. David has built a royal palace on the mount in Jerusalem. His royal house is now the symbol of his victory. To use the words we'll read in just a moment in Psalm 30, his mountain stands strong. But then, quite suddenly, God brought upon David a near-death experience. God parked him, as it were, on the edge of the grave, only to save him later on. David describes this time in his life as nothing less than a resurrection, a movement from death to life. And here he describes it in song. And at the center of this psalm, at the center of this song, he shares the great truth that God whispered in his ear, a truth that should ring in all our ears, especially at Easter. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Please stand if you would, and we will read Psalm 30 together. A Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple, or literally a song for the Hanukkah of the Beth. I will tell you, O Lord, for you have, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up, and you have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks. I will give thanks to you forever. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do thank you for this psalm of praise as it comes from the lips of David at such a difficult time in his life. 
and yet how clearly it preaches to us the joy of resurrection hope. Speak to us now through it, we pray, and guide us in our thoughts. Use it to convict us of sin. Use it to encourage us in faith and glorify your son, we pray, in our midst. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As we begin this morning, let me offer a little chastened advice, chastened advice from my own life, and more importantly, from the Bible and from our psalm today. When you are talking about God and your life, never ever say, I want to do great things for God. Now, it's not the want part that's the problem. It's great to want God, to hunger and thirst after him. And of course, we are to live for his glory. The tricky bit in that sentence, though, is that three-letter word, for, as in, I want to do great things for God. I think that three-letter word in our mouths is an invitation to trouble. At least it has been for me. And more importantly, it was for David. I begin this way because Psalm 30, you will note in the introduction, was written by David at a time when he was trying to do for God. The psalm begins, a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. On the surface, this sounds nice, sounds like a time of celebration. But believe it or not, this was one of the most dangerous times in David's life. A time when he had arrived, when he had succeeded, and when he started to think about doing something for God. This psalm tells us that story and tells us what God, what God taught David. And yes, it has everything to do with Easter. But let's start. Let's start, first of all, with David's story as it is woven throughout the storm and throughout this poem and really through the storm of his life in this poem. Reading Psalm 30 and the book of 2 Samuel, I think we can identify the timing of these events. It was a tricky time for David. David had, as I said, made it. His kingdom was secure. His palace of cedar was built. It was quite the Cinderella story. David's rise to power was spectacular, like that of Joseph. He was born the disposable eighth son of his father. At that time, uh, being the eighth son meant that you were truly and really disposable. And in fact, he was so disposable, he was so far down the list of inheriting anything, that his father sent him out into the wild to live and to keep the sheep. At that time, uh, it was pretty much considered the worst job you could have, and it was also the most likely to get you killed. So it was the perfect place for your eighth son. But despite this humble beginning or maybe in part because of it, God chose David and through Samuel anointed him to be Israel's second king. David went on uh, to fight an experienced warrior, a giant Goliath who was fully mailed. And of course, you know that story, how he brought him down with a slingshot and won that great battle. And then for a time, he lived like a kind of Israelite Robin Hood or Jewish Robin Hood, He had this group of warriors around him. They lived in the wilderness, dodging wicked King Saul and other local powers and chieftains who wanted him dead. 
he probably was for quite a while the most wanted man in the entire region in which he lived. In these days, these tough days, David was probably rarely tempted to say, I will do something great for God. Each day was about survival. And at the end of each day, he would lay down and he would sing the words of Psalm 4. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. But eventually, these days of danger passed as God had promised. David built a great palace for himself. He defeated his enemies and he was secure. The normal next step in that culture, among all the kings of that time, was that you would reward, you would reward the local deity who had given you success. That is what kings did. That is what David's peers had always done for a thousand years. You serve a God, the God rewards you, and then you honor the God with a temple usually dedicated to the God and also sort of to yourself. That was basic religious commerce in those days. You do for me, and I will do for you. Now, please don't misunderstand. I don't think for one moment when David asked to build the temple that he was simply following that pagan logic. There was definitely within him a true seed of piety. He did genuinely want to serve God. But the reaction, the reaction from God was so strong and direct when David offered to build a house for him. God responded through the prophet Nathan. And Nathan relays the message, quote, Go and tell my servant, David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. This is just a portion of God's reply, but the message could not be clearer. God is saying, David, be very careful about that three-letter word. What is it that you are going to do for me? Sometime later, this struggle came up again in David's life. Around the time of this psalm, the time of the dedication of the temple, David fell into the sin of pride. Maybe once again, he was thinking about what he could do for God. Second Samuel tells us that in a moment of pride and confidence, David numbered the people. He took a census. Now today, that's acceptable and even a normal part of governance. But it was something God had clearly forbidden Israelite kings from doing. David knew this, and to his credit, he repented quickly and he repented openly. But by then, but by then, the people were fully engaged in his sin. Again, it's important to note that they knew as well that it was sin. This pride from David leads to the open sin of the people, and then that open sin led to illness and even death. A plague, a plague came upon the people. And God told David very clearly that this was his doing, his fault. But then, just as suddenly, the plague is miraculously cut short when David humbles himself to the ground and makes a sacrifice to God. In fact, David is led by the Holy Spirit 
to the very piece of ground where Abraham had once offered up Isaac. He buys that plot of land and he offers a sacrifice there that brings an end to the plague. But David doesn't just sacrifice there. He buys that land. He consecrates that spot and he consecrates it, dedicates it for the building of the temple under his son. Although David did not build the temple, that was Solomon, he dedicated that spot, that land, and the place where he made that great sacrifice in the face of his pride and arrogance. And when he did that, it was all again in the context of having just fallen into the sin of pride and experiencing a mighty and dangerous judgment from God. I think all this provides the clear background to Psalm 30. When you first read it, it's not what you would expect, is it, for a psalm of dedication. You kind of expect a psalm like this to say something like, God bless this structure, God use this structure for your glory. But in reading the book of 2 Samuel and reading the history, we understand that that was not what was on David's mind as he consecrated this piece of land. What was on his heart was the way in which God had humbled him, humbled him to death, only to miraculously save him from death, and how that experience led him to the very spot on which the temple would one day be built. And you see this echoed throughout the psalm. Look at verses 2 and 3. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you've brought up my soul from Sheol. That's the word for the grave. You've restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Again, the temple mound was dedicated in the context of a near-death experience. God had put David, you see. God had put David in a place of intense weakness and humiliation as David began to do his work. The first step in building the temple would not highlight David's generosity. The first step, the ground-breaking, if you will, ceremony, would not highlight David's generosity, but rather his weakness, his frailty, his sin. You can also see something of David's repentance memorialized in verse 6. He confesses it there, what was going on in his time, in his life at that time. As for me... He says, in my prosperity, I said I shall never be moved. This is a boast, isn't it? David looked at his life and he said, I've arrived. What makes this even more horrendous is when you read it with Psalm 10 in front of you. Psalm 10 describes the wicked man this way. The wicked man, quote, says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. This is also the language of the fool in the book of Proverbs. It's the fool who says in his heart, look what I've achieved. Look what I'm going to do for God. In Jesus' parable of the foolish man, the foolish man says, come, let's build more barns. He thinks he will live forever. He thinks he is established. He's made it. It's the sin of pride that James rebukes. In James chapter 4, he writes, Come now, 
You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. So at the height of his powers, and just as he is seeking to do something great for God, God brings him to the very end of himself. Verse 7 puts it so well. You hid your face. I was dismayed. It was a reverse benediction. Remember the Old Testament benediction that I use with you each week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. David says, God simply hid his face for a moment. And all that power I thought I had, all that security I thought I had, it was all gone. God brought David face to face with death. And nothing preaches our human weakness better than death. Death is an inescapable reminder of our weakness, isn't it? Most of us live our lives in the spirit of verse 6. I shall never be moved. In other words, yes, I know hard things will come, but with love and a few friends, I'll get by. In fact, that's the basis for most of our sitcoms, isn't it? You can live in that delusion, that delusion for a long time. Maybe you have. But at a moment like this, a moment when you come face to face, with the loneliness and the finality of death, you will see, you'll be forced to see God's point. To be human is to be helpless, to be helpless. And as all the poets have noted, Christian and non-Christian, every person dies alone. No human can die with you. So on the day David dedicated the Temple Mound, he didn't sing about what he was about to do for God. He didn't even sing about the military victories, about the slaying of Goliath. He didn't do what all the other kings did. Instead, he sang about weakness, about sin, and about salvation. Now he was ready for usefulness. David had relearned the secret to the believing life, the secret to the Christian life. You never, you never do anything for God. Your story and my story is him doing for you. It is our glorious privilege to go deeper and deeper into debt now and forevermore. And brothers and sisters, is not this the first lesson of Easter? Doesn't it remind us every year, just as the temple did for Israel, remind us that even the best of men is not able to make his way back to God. At the end of the day, every other religion on earth, every other faith system back then and today says, do your best, try hard, and things will probably work out for you in the end. Do good, and karma or the universe or whatever will be on your side. Christianity alone, Easter says, that that approach is not only wrong, it's actually completely wrong, totally backwards. Easter says that our first steps back to God only begin 
when we finally admit we can't do it and ask him to do it for us. And then, only then, he tells us the good news, that in fact he has already done it, that he did it without us, that he did it without our help, without our talents, and without our money. We say to God sometimes, I will build a house for you. But God says to us in Christ, I have prepared a place for you. That is the story that lies behind this psalm. But second, along with the story, remember what I said earlier, the story has a sermon within it. It is both story and sermon. Ten of the 12 verses, 10 of the 12 verses here are addressed to God, if you notice when we read it. Ten of the 12 are addressed to God. They relate David's sin. They tell his story, his near-death experience, his joyous praise when God brought him back from the pit. But two verses, only two verses, are addressed not to God, but to us, to the congregation, to other believers. It's as if David breaks out in praise to God and then takes a moment, takes a breath, and turns and faces us. Listen to his sermon. Listen to the interlude. It's verses 4 and 5. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, his people, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Here in the center In the most famous part of the psalm, he turns to believers and says, you must, you must join me in praise. You must sing the praises of the Lord. This is not, David is saying, this is not just my individual experience as David. This is an experience and a truth that is true for all of God's people. You may not have had this exact experience But every believer here has been under the discipline of God at some time in their life. At some point, every follower of God will experience discipline, weakness, and suffering because of sin. David doesn't sugarcoat that here. He writes very openly in verse 5, God is angry. It's a real thing. God hates sin. He is angry with us at times. Remember, David here is a man after God's own heart. He has the Holy Spirit. He's the author of the Psalms. He's the Messiah of the Old Testament. But he wasn't immune from the judgment, anger, and discipline of a heavenly father. Now, if that is all David said, if he simply said to us this morning, I sinned, God got angry, then there wouldn't be much to sing about. But David goes on, doesn't he? His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Do you realize this morning what a radical perspective that is coming from a man who almost died? His sin and God's anger had brought him to the brink of death. He was going down into the pit, he says. But verse 5 says, that when he stopped for a moment, even on the verge of death, and compared his discipline to God's love, there was no comparison. When I look over my own life, 
as, I sure, as I'm sure will be true for you as well, I can see the rod, the rod of suffering and the rod of discipline. I see those times. But I, when I look at my whole of my life, when I look into eternity that God has planned for me, I realize that his wrath is only the wrath of a father, not the wrath of an enemy. A good and loving parent may get angry. They will get angry. But this will never be the dominant theme. Love will be the theme. When I look back at my own life, I know there were times of discipline. I can remember a few of them. If my dad comes back to preach here anymore, you'll hear about more of them, unfortunately. But I don't remember these times of discipline all that well unless I really try. What I remember, though, instantly is that I was loved deeply, profoundly, sacrificially. This is what God had promised to David in 2 Samuel. God had said to David when he made a covenant with him, I will discipline you. I will bring suffering into your life. You are going to struggle, but it will be the discipline of a father. It will be in love. It will be for your own good, and it will always be cut short because love will always be the context and love will always have the final say. Or to put it in the language of the psalm, God's judgments will be like a guest who comes and stays the night, but his love will be like a father, like a permanent resident in the house arriving in the morning. And isn't it just stunning that David stops in the middle of this incredible moment in his life and turns to us, turns to the congregation, and tells us this. And I want to do the same for you today. You may be suffering this morning under God's discipline. Or you may be suffering innocently like Job. Not all suffering is punishment. We have to be careful about that one. But either way, can you see around the suffering, around the edges of it, as it looms large in your mind, can you see around it for the moment that David speaks of here? Can you see that it is really just for an evening, just for the night? Even if your suffering lasts for the rest of your life, in the first millennium, the first thousand years you share with Christ, it will seem like it was just an evening after all. Yes, it is a heavy thing right now. So heavy, maybe you feel that it will kill you. But compared to his love, compared to his favor, compared to the days of your glory, it is light, it is momentary. And isn't that exactly what poor, suffering, hurting, beaten, imprisoned Apostle Paul meant when he wrote these words? We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. The weight of glory and the love of a father are the things of forever. Many years after David's death, Jesus, of course, was born into our world. And as I like to remind you whenever we're studying the Psalms, remember, Jesus sang 
the Psalms pretty much almost exclusively. And so that meant that Jesus sang probably repeatedly this psalm. He sang it. And when Jesus sang it, at that very moment, the psalm reached its final resting point. David experienced this truth. We experienced this truth. But Jesus, above all, experienced this truth and didn't just experience it. He fulfilled it. In fact, in the Easter story, all the lessons of Psalm 30 come home. In Christ dying, we see the absurdity of trying to do for God. It is he who must do for us. As Jesus himself reminds us, he is the final temple. God has built already a house for himself in the person of his son and destroy that temple and he will raise it up in three days. And it is Jesus above all, Jesus above all others who knows the lesson here. His anger is but for a moment. Joy comes in the morning. As he hung on the cross, all the wrath our sin deserved was poured out on him. Wrath did not simply take him to the edge of death, as it did with David. No, wrath swallowed him up, but death could not hold him. For the Father's love is the love of a lifetime. The third day must come, the morning must come, and with the morning, all the shadows must flee away. And now today, this very moment, this verse waits for one last final singing when in the presence of the resurrected Christ and looking back on your life and my life we will sing suffering may last for an evening but joy comes in the morning you have turned all my morning into dancing amen let's pray father we look forward now to the day when the resurrected Christ will banish all shadows and where the Father's love will cover all his people forever and ever without discipline, without wrath. How grateful we are, Father, that we have that hope and we have that hope because we serve a risen Savior, one who knew the darkest night of your wrath but has also awakened for us the dawn. Give to your people this morning hope in him Strengthen them in their suffering, in their nighttime. Give them the assurance of the coming day and do it through your resurrected son in whose name we pray, amen.